Welcome to the Soto Health and Wellness Podcast. We are the Soto Brothers. I am Samuel Soto, doctor of physical therapy. And I am Joseph Soto, a physician. Together, we are board-certified medical providers who specialize in internal medicine and physical therapy. Our mission is to promote longevity, health span, and wellness in order to prevent illness and injury so we can optimize the human experience. Any information on diseases and treatments available at this channel is intended for general guidance only and must never be considered a substitute for advice provided by a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare professional with questions you may have regarding your medical condition. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Soto Health and Wellness Podcast. Today, we have a special guest. Her name is Valentina. She's one of our cousins. Valentina, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Valentina. I'm the cousin, and I am getting my master's. Well, I'm going to start my master's degree in epidemiology and biostats at CUNY next semester. And um, yeah, I just have a major interest in public health, majored in human biology in college with a minor in psych and a lot of what I, I guess, focused a lot of my, um, you know, research and projects on things like that uh, would surround low income communities, especially obviously being someone who's Hispanic, Latino. Um, that's a lot of like where my interest lies and yeah, just really passionate about public health. Awesome. Awesome. So what, what, what made you interested in epidemiology? So uh, my initial interest from, I guess the interest started more in public health um, rather than epidemiology specifically. I took a class called medical sociology at Hunter and um, I kind of, you know, saw a whole different side of health and medicine, one that I wasn't really exposed to before when I was just taking um, science classes and I think that really exposed me to like a whole different side of the health industry as a whole and things that affect health on a bigger scale rather than just the individual scale. And I think that, um, you know, obviously going into that, I was exposed to epidemiology courses as well. And it kind of uh, gave me a light bulb in my head of like, okay, you know, if you have like the hard evidence to explain these more social aspects of health or more, you know, things that people don't really think about, such as like where you grow up or your background, just other parts of like your demographics. Um, If you have like the empirical evidence to support that, then you'll be able to translate that message better across the board. And so I think that's where my main um, interest for epidemiology comes from. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, yeah, you picked a great field. I think as a as a physician, I think that's something that is so important um, because I think a lot of people they they think that just the the delivery of healthcare is all that is needed, but actually that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I think most of healthcare is actually uh, you know like where you live, uh, what your background is, what your education is, which is basically epidemiology and public health. So I think that's that's fantastic that you're doing that, and you know you're you're, you're you chose a field that's that's like very good. Um, so what's up, Sam? What are you what you been up to recently? 
What's going on, guys? It's Sam here. I hope everyone knows the difference between Joe and I's vo and my voice at this point. What have I been up to? Um, I visited you upstate last weekend, up in uh, Beacon, New York. So uh, yeah, we we uh, we did a little bit of hiking. We uh, did a little bit of exploring, and uh, it was good to be there. Yeah, right now I've just kind of been working on just doing a lot of research on um, you know things related to physical therapy, pain, things like that, low back pain. Uh, but I'm excited to be on this podcast with our cousin Valentina. Definitely want to learn more about public health and epidemiology. My my question for you, Valentina, is so epidemiology gets a lot of like bad rep in the in the field in the world of like medicine sometimes because mm -hmm. it's so hard to study certain like diseases because a lot of epidemiology is like observational studies. So what do you say to someone who's like a big critic of how reliable these epidemiological studies are? Yeah, um, I think it's important to just note that when it comes to epidemiology, you're always looking at the bigger picture of things, um, especially when it comes to, you know, the importance of understanding why certain groups of people are affected and others aren't. Um, a lot of times it can come with a lot of prejudice or just even, not even prejudice, just lack of understanding about why things are the way they are. And so, you know, obviously with the pandemic and, you know, the more like more light has been shown on epidemiology as a field because of the pandemic, there's been a lot of like negative connotations with, you know, the, I guess, trustworthiness and legitimacy of epidemiology because of critique on the CDC and things like that. Um, but I think as a whole, uh, it's just important to understand that when it comes to understanding these differences in different populations, you you got to know like why it's happening. And the only way to do that is if you have numbers. And that's going to be the reason, not the reason, but that's going to be the way to kind of translate the message to not even just practitioners, but the general public. Like that's what people respond to is having the actual numbers because people are always like oh but what about the statistics what about the statistics all right well here they are you know mm -hmm. and so i think just yeah it's 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 important to consider um epidemiology and biostats and the role in general yeah and i think you touched a very important point there when you when you were talking about the pandemic so, um, yeah, I think the tipping point was the pandemic where we really saw how important where you lived was what. And unfortunately, we saw how minority groups were affected much, much worse than than other groups. Um, you know, among the black and Hispanic community, there were much higher rates of death uh, of COVID versus other groups such as Caucasians. So that's just another clear example of how of how important this stuff is. Right. And I just want to touch upon something too. I mean, this is a little bit of like an aside, but you know, a lot of the distrust in um, medicine can come from things that, you know, certain populations experience that others don't like just any type of apprehension towards medicine can also lead to differences in like, rather disparities in which populations are getting sicker. Um, and so the only way to really target that is to understand it. And a lot of the times I think epidemiology gets a bad rep because you don't really see the results. It's kind of preventative. Um, public yeah. health work as a whole is more preventative and is on a greater scale. So it doesn't, you don't really see the gratification of the, I guess, results of that as easily yeah. when it's like individual medicine. 
Right. But I, I think public health has had a invaluable role in the in the health of, of everybody, because if it weren't for public health and the initiatives, we wouldn't have vaccines. Uh, we wouldn't have hand, hand washing campaign that pretty much eliminated a bunch of, um, you know, diseases that are spread through that route. Uh, we wouldn't have um, safe sex practices. So all this stuff came from public health, guys. So that's this is why I feel like this is such an important topic to talk about. Because like I mentioned, it's not just the the, the medicine itself, but we, we need to think about the other side of the spectrum, which is how do people perceive their health? Um, and that has a lot to do with wh- who they are in terms of their background, their educational level, their, their wealth, and, and other things like that. So super important to understand that. For sure. Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, I think... Mm-hmm. I, I think um... I think we should dive into the uh, the social determinants of, of health since we're, we're on this topic and, you know, access to health care, uh, quality education, like what actually determines a person's health? Is it is it their zip code? Is it access to education? Is it everything? Is it one thing? So like Valentino, what do you think is like one of the most important determinants of health? That's a tricky question for me to think about, but. Uh, and I think it's tricky because it's just such a multifaceted thing. Um, a lot of these working parts, like they're they're part of like a bigger system and one part affects the other. So for example, like if you come from a more low income household, all, odds are is that you, you know, you are going to live in a place where um, certain food isn't going to be as accessible to you. Certain resources aren't going to be as accessible to you. And then obviously when it comes to even just cultural uh, competency. Um, A lot of the times people are going to be more apprehensive towards um, even going to the doctor at all because of religious reasons, because of reasons having to do with how they grew up and, you know, maybe relying more on spirituality versus like going to the doctor for mental health. Like all of these things work together and can really shape the trajectory the trajectory of a person's health, not even just a person of an entire demographic group. Um, so yeah, it's hard to pinpoint which one would be the most important, but I think in general, it's just important to realize that all of these things matter when it comes to the ultimate health of communities. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, let's, let's talk about, um, Let's talk about zip codes, right? So that's because that's the title of our, our podcast here. Do zip codes determine a person's health outcomes? So some some interesting stats here in some um, states around the country. So for example, in Chicago, there's a few different neighborhoods. One there's one neighborhood in Chicago called Streeterville, and the zip code is six zero six one one, and the average life expectancy is about ninety years. Whereas just a few minutes away, driving distance, there's another area called Englewood, zip code 60621, and the average life expectancy is 60 years old. Oh, wow. So, you know, we see this across the Midwest. We see this across the country. You know, places like West Detroit, you know, there's there's so much less access to green space, especially in minority groups. And not having access to green space and not being around nature, which is what humans are intended to be around, it's nature, causes a lot of medical issues, things like asthma, things like air pollution, dust mites, um, you know, things like heavy metals, fluoride in our water, unfiltered water, contaminated water. So I think 
you know, I think where where we're located is a big determinant of health. And I think like how, how do we solve this problem? Like do we just do we need more money? Is it a money issue that we have to give these these states and, and boroughs more money to to fix these problems? Or like what do you guys think? How do we solve this issue and disparities between zip codes that are just a few minutes from each other? I, um, I would say a couple of things. So just to back up for a second, let, let's talk about what the actual determinants of health are, so, social determinants of health. So there's actually five definitions that the CDC recommends or states. One is healthcare access, education access and quality, social and community context, economic stability, neighborhood and built environment. So I, I think that's a very difficult question to, uh, question to answer because it's, like Valentina was stating earlier, it's 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 very complicated. Um, health health is is very complex, and it's not just you know one dimensional. Like here's a blood pressure medication. I want you to take this medication. Like we have, as I think, as a medical society or as a, as a medical people, we start we have to start thinking about people's perceptions of health rather than just treating it as if it's just X, Y, and Z. Like it's not it's not as simple as that. Um, I think Valentina started pointing out a couple of things. One is cultural competency. So that's the, we, the first thing we have to do is start acknowledging that different people, depending on where they live, where they're, what part of the world they're from, what religion they're, they're, they are, they're going to have completely different uh, views on medicine. So as you guys know, um, there was uh, the Tuskegee experiment. I don't know if you guys, have you guys heard about that. Yeah. In the 1940s and 1970s, this was syphilis, right? Yeah, basically, yeah. The, the I believe it was the U.S. government uh, intentionally infected African-Americans with syphilis. And they had the treatment to treat it, which is penicillin, but they chose not to. And the, the point was to see what the natural progression of the disease was. So when you have something as egregious as that, I mean, how are you not gonna not how are you not gonna trust the the medical community when when an entire group of people were exposed to something like that? Then you have what happened in right in the Holocaust, which was also like the same thing. You had physicians in Nazi Germany, um, you know, talking about how you know Jews were inferior, how their genetics were inferior. So th- this stuff has been going on for centuries, and it, it's not it's still it's still here. Like it hasn't gone away. And I myself have have had a lot of patients who are from these backgrounds who still to this day they choose not to go to the doctor because they're afraid. Uh, they're afraid that they're going to be discriminated against, that they're going to be taken advantage of, and you know it, it's it's just very complicated. So we have to, whenever we try to, whenever we're going to deliver healthcare, we have to always have that in the back of our minds. Um, but it's just very complicated. And there's like the education part, which is. Do people even know what high blood pressure is, as an example? Right. Like, what does that even mean? Like, like, I can give you an example. I've had patients which they've come to the office, their blood pressures were high. And I would say, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to do X, Y, and Z. And here's a blood pressure medication. You have to lose weight, blah, blah, blah. Well, they would come back three months later. And I would say, are you still taking that medication? What do you think they told me? They said, no, I thought that was just one time. Right. That's 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 education. Like they don't have that. Right. They don't have that. They don't grasp the idea that you have to take this every day. Right. Yeah, But you know what, Joe? You know what? There I don't blame that thinking process. You know why? Because in this country, 
what, what's the point of medications if the medication you have to take for life? Is that actually medication? Is it actually curing anything? Right? So in their minds, they think, you know, okay, I have this problem. If this medication was actually going to help me, shouldn't I just take it one time and I'll be fine? But the fact that you have to keep taking medications your entire life, like it just seems like a greater, there's a greater plan. Think, yeah. Like, think about that. Yeah, I know. I know what you're trying to say, but is it's... it actually fixing the problem? It is at the moment, but you're right. I, I, I agree with you. I think that, I mean, I'm giving an example of high, high blood pressure, but there's so many other examples. Like, let's say, for example, someone came in with a, 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 a wound, right? They needed antibiotics. I remember I had a patient in the Bronx when I was in medical school. She literally didn't take her antibiotics. Like, she was supposed to take, like, 21 days of antibiotics, did not take it. Just took it once. Oh, Okay. So, so it, yeah, I think like you're pointing out basically the lack of understanding that some people are going to have. And a lot yeah. of the time, that's not really going to be their fault. And if I yeah. could just go back a little bit to um, the whole like, you know, what you brought up with like the Tuskegee experiment. And um, I think it's important to th there's this book, which maybe you've read. It's called Medical Apartheid by Harriet E. Washington. Mm -hmm. And essentially that book just outlines the beginnings of medicine in America with respect to um, like African-Americans. It goes back to slavery, right? So uh, medical experimentation, things like that. And it touches on the, on that same experiment that you brought up as well. And then it kind of just like brings together why a lot of people, um, for example, in the black community are going to have that type of like lack of distrust in medicine. And that's also why I think there were lower um, vaccination rates in black communities during the uh, COVID pandemic, like the peak of it. And a lot of that is a lack of distrust because they're saying, oh, you know, like there's this history of medical experimentation. There's this history of like, you know, our bodies being used for reasons that are against our own will, essentially, just for what, right? And so I think it's important to kind of also focus on that and how that plays into the role of people not wanting to go to the doctor, not wanting to trust medicine. Um, but of course, obviously, then there's a whole issue of, you know, yeah, why do you have to take a medication for the rest of your life? Which is a whole other thing that goes more into, like, I think um, nutrition and, um, things like that, like just it's underlying issues in the infrastructure of our mm -hmm. country. Yeah. 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 No. And, um, if we could, so yeah, we kind of touched on right now, we're talking about cultural and historic, but we should also talk about access. Right. So healthcare access and quality is also a social determinant of health. So, I mean, if you don't have access to healthcare, how are you going to get better? I mean, let's just, let's say you live in a neighborhood where there's maybe one doctor's office and you have to travel 30 miles to reach the next physician you're not going to go to the doctor and we see this across the country especially in rural areas uh areas that are underserved uh people just straight up don't go to see the the, the doctors and they don't have any follow-up which is a big problem in this country so that that's something that's something else to keep to keep in mind yeah. And if you look at overpopulated areas too, with the long wait times, I mean, I've worked in like four different doctor's offices, sorry, three different doctor's offices and, you know, all in very densely populated areas. One was in Richmond Hill, Queens. 
And there are times when people would be waiting up to like an hour plus for their physical therapy appointments. And, you know, they have no choice. Like they have to be there. They want to get better. They want to get the therapy that they need. And, you know, if it's the only reliable doctor that takes their insurance, whether that be Medicaid or Fidelis, which is a whole other issue, like, you know, that like they're stuck they're, That's That's the only option for them. And a lot of the times people in low income communities, they don't have cars. How are they going to get to the other doctors? I mean, yeah, sure. You can use public transit. But if you're an old person who lives by themselves is surviving off of Social Security, how are you going to get to your to a better doctor that happens to be like an hour train right, right away or whatever the case may be? Exactly, exactly. And also child care. Some, some people, they just won't go to their appointment because they don't have anyone to take care of their child. They have to work. They have to work overtime. In my experience... Um, when I used to practice medicine in Orange County, I don't know where you, I don't know if you know where that is, Valentina, but it's a, it's a county, it's in New York. Yeah. It's a, it's above like Westchester, but to the West, very rural, right? You would, you think you would, you're in Pennsylvania because it's so different from New York, but I would always see Hispanic patients on Saturdays. And I was, I don't, I would always ask myself, why are they only coming on Saturdays? Well, it's because Monday to Friday they're working and they probably can't take the day off. Because they're probably working in jobs, unfortunately, that don't give them the ability to do that. Um, so I just found that very interesting, like why I would always see them on Saturdays. Like it was never Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Mm-hmm. So that's just another example right there of access. You were going to say something, Sam? I mean, access to healthcare is definitely a huge problem. I've seen it, you know, working as a physical therapist, like Valentino was saying, especially in PT where you have to see patients multiple times a week. So access has to be accessible. Um, it's not like, a you know, you see a patient for 10 minutes and then you don't see them for like three months, six months, a year, like other healthcare fields. PT is something where you need to be seeing the patient multiple times a week for many, many weeks. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing that the present day society has uh, improved upon in regards to technology is telemedicine. And telemedicine is, is huge right now because it's allowing people, like you said, Joe, in those rural areas, it's allowing them to have access to quality healthcare. So I think I think more uh, access to telemedicine and you know people having computers and Wi-Fi to be able to consult with a, a healthcare provider could be life saving. So I think that's one solution to to that problem is to allow people to have more access to telemedicine visits. Yeah. And we're, we're going to talk about solutions towards the end, but that, that is that is a good point. Um, I, I Let me define what public health actually is, and I, I want to know what you guys think about it. So public health has been defined as the science and art of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting health through the organized efforts and informed choices of society, organizations, public and private, communities, and individuals. So when I, when I read that statement... Uh, the only thing I can think of is what the heck happened. I'm shaking my head. What I'm happened? <laughs> right? Where do we even start with this? This is this is yeah. right. This is where crazy. Are we preventing disease. There's no disease prevention in this country. Right, there's, and that's from the CDC. Management. This is the CDC definition that I just read. You guys, organized efforts and informed choices of society, promoting health, preventing disease. I mean, that's not happening, right? Like, that's the whole point of public health, 
right? So that I thought that was crazy. Uh, and this country, you know, it's 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 mainly sick care is what we do here. We don't we don't do healthcare. And um, as a healthcare provider, you really see that up front. Like it, a lot of people, you know, you see them for ten minutes and they want that pill, they want that quick fix, and you're you're being seen to see like twenty, thirty, forty patients in one day. And it's just it's just the the whole system has to be taken down and restarted. But yeah, I thought that was crazy. Um, do, what do you think about that, Valentina? Yeah, I think it's just, again, like it just goes back to needing some major infrastructural revamping and change because otherwise we're basically trying to put a bandage over a system that's already kind of broken. Um, I mean, just even the influence of, you know, fast food chains is just like a little part of it right and just big pharma of course and pushing these types of medications onto people you know not this doesn't apply to all medications but you know there are other ways that health can be managed that doesn't have to involve um certain medications i think and as someone i have pcos which is polycystic ovarian syndrome and so this is something that is kind of like I've had a good amount of like one-on-one -on -one experience with because, you know, immediately when you get diagnosed with PCOS, the doctor, I mean, at least in my experience, I wasn't even really given much information as to what it even meant or was. And so they just told me, okay, well, just take birth control and you'll be good. And, you know, as someone who wants to kind of know the underlying root and cause of, I guess, like whatever health condition I might have, thankfully mild, you know, I don't want to just uh, treat the symptoms and that's it. I want to understand what caused it. I want to understand what I can do to kind of manage it in different ways. Is it whether it be health and exercise and things like that? And unfortunately, those options weren't really given to me as quickly as just take birth control. You know, I didn't even have a, I didn't even get a hormone test done before they suggested birth control. And so, wow. Yeah. So how I, did they diagnose it then? Uh, I had a sonogram. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, yeah. you know, I had to fight for um, getting that hormone test done and I got all my blood work and that's when I was able to myself see, you know, the different like. DHEA levels and all this stuff like I didn't understand right like I, I didn't yeah. know what that was um, mm -hmm. but it you know it's just things like that that kind of like go into the bigger picture of why aren't we taking more time to educate people um, and of course this doesn't apply to every practitioner like I've been fortunate where I did eventually find an amazing um, practitioner who did offer me the questions I mean the answers to the questions that I had but it just sucks that it's not something that's so readily available. Yeah, that's a that's a common occurrence in medicine. Um, I mean, a lot of providers they just I think it has mostly to do with that they don't have enough time. They, they're just they're just so slammed with patients and administrative stuff that they don't they don't right. have time. But I, I don't think that's actually an excuse because even when I've been swamped with thirty patients, forty, I, I still take the two minutes it takes to explain this is yeah. what you have. This is what I think you should do. Like, do you understand what you're what this means for you? It really doesn't take that long, guys. So, you know, that's unfortunate that you had that experience. 
So you can sacrifice. So Joe, what are you, what you're saying is basically time, like saying that we don't have enough time as medical providers is not an excuse. So, but how, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you acknowledge all those concerns and how do you treat holistically despite not having enough time? Do you sacrifice your own time? I think that's where the role of public health comes in and why there needs to be more funding because these resources need to be available on a level that's not just like putting all of that onto the physician or the nurse or whatever clinician or medical practitioner, you know, like I, like there are a lot of people in a lot of areas in the country where people just don't know, like Joe was saying, they don't know what this medication is. Like they don't know what this is. They don't know what that is. Like there's not enough, I guess, like literacy. And that, again, has to do with like what resources are available in those certain areas. Yeah. And I I think uh, I think this brings us this is a good segue to the next section where you mentioned funding for public health. So that's actually something I wanted to get into now. And um, as you guys know, the U.S. is is the country in the world that spends the most amount of money in healthcare. I think it's something like 20% of the GDP every year goes to healthcare. So they spend they spend more than all the other European countries put together. And yet we have one of the worst health outcomes in the world. So how is that possible? How, how are we spending the most amount and yet we have the worst health outcomes in every category? Our life expectancy is going down. In the past three years, guys, we are living less. Americans are living an average of two years less than they were in 2019. Now, I know I know what you guys are thinking. Yeah, COVID. So why hasn't that happened in Europe? All right, it's just the US because of this. This is, this is what we're talking about. It's public health. It's lack of, of social programs, which is where I feel like Europe excels. And the reason why Europe has so much better health outcomes is because they spend a lot more on public health and public health programs uh, like childcare. Um, they, they, they really focus on preventative medicine, which is something we don't do in this country. So I wanted to talk to, to about a book that I read recently called Sickening, which is by a family physician. His name is Dr. John Abramson. For those of you who haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend reading this book. I think this book is has changed the way I view medicine forever. And he delves into why the U.S. consistently has the worst worst health outcomes among the wealthy nations. His main argument is that big pharma has a massive influence on our health. And in the U.S., there's a lack of government oversight in terms of controlling drug prices. There's a lack of robust social programs. There's access issues like we just talked about. There's lack of health insurance because if you don't have health insurance, you can't see a physician. And then there's also high cost of medical care, like high deductibles, high cost of prescription drugs, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you guys make of this? Like, how is this, how, how is this happening? Man, the insurance is one thing. I, <laughs> I used to be a medical biller and just trying to get reimbursements on different things. It's, it's just like, it's impossible already. Like, even if you have insurance, it, it almost seems like it doesn't even help all that much sometimes. Um, but yeah, like it's just really sad to know that, you know, even in a country that does supposedly spend so much of their resources on healthcare, there's so little access to 
good healthcare. There's so little access. Even if you do have insurance, you just can't get like all of the help that you need. Exactly. So that that is the tragedy of the American healthcare system is that unfortunately, the people who get access to this are wealthy people. So it, it ties back to where we were saying, if you live in a certain zip code, you have access to healthcare and you have access to medications and devices and you have all these things to your disposal. But unfortunately, if you don't live in the right zip code, then you don't. It's as simple as that. And as Sam was mentioning in the beginning, you could look at all the cities throughout the US, whether it's Detroit, Chicago, New York, the Bronx, Manhattan. I mean, this is everywhere around the US. This is not just in the Northeast, the Midwest, it's in the South. It's where you live determines your health outcome. And unfortunately, the more money you have, or fortunately, the more money you have, the better your health outcomes will be. I mean, that, that's been proven over and over again. Um, and that, you know, it's just crazy how, like, even though we spend so much money, we have, the, the, we have the, these poor health outcomes. And the reason is because most of the money actually goes to drug development in this country. So big pharma, basically, they're the ones who de- who design all these clinical trials. Um, you know, they're the ones who basically dictate what medical journals see and their publications. But the vast majority of the money actually goes to drug development, new drugs and devices. So like new new devices like hip implants, pacemakers. And it turns out that these new drugs and these these devices, they don't actually improve health. In fact, it's the opposite because if you, it's human nature when you, if you tell someone, Hey, I want you to take this pill. What do you think that does to them psychologically? Right. It kind of, it kind of gives them a free pass. They say, Oh, I'm just going to take this pill. I don't have to exercise. I don't have to eat. Right. I can just take this pill. My doctor just told me I can just take this and it'll lower my cholesterol, lower my blood pressure. So I feel like in this country, I mean, it's not just in medicine, it's in a lot of domains, uh, like consumerism, we buy we buy things we don't need in this country, we're in debt constantly. But I feel like that also seeps into the medical culture, whereas people, patients, they, they ex- they're expecting a quick fix. Like, I don't know where your experience has been, Sam, or Valentina, and, you're, and when you worked in the medical offices, but people, they're expecting the quick fix. They want the pill that's going to solve the issue. Yeah. They don't want to deal with, I don't want to come back here five times. I don't want to change my diet. And I need this now. And that comes from big pharma. Like they, they've unfortunately created this culture that we're always expecting the new, the next toy to come out every year. Then the, the new pill that's going to cure everything, right? The magic pill, the magic bullet. That's where we keep calling things. And it's not going to come guys. Like it's just not going to happen. And we really need to, we need to mirror what Europe is doing. And countries like Australia, New Zealand, they really got it right in terms of public health. They they have everything that we don't have. They have uh, higher life expectancies. They they their childhood uh, infant mortality rate is much lower than ours. Uh, women have less complications during pregnancy. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I, I don't know what do you guys think about this because for me, to me, this is just. It's, it's crazy how we're spending all this money and, and we're not getting anywhere. I think that America faces also kind of an added uh, challenge in that, you know, a lot of these countries, they, there's going to be, I think, more uniform. And this is just me kind of like thinking here. They, there may be some more uniform thinking amongst the population. 
and more uniformity as a whole in the population. Yes. So America has like the bigger challenge of like, okay, well, with redlining and with all these different uh, groups of people, not everyone is going to think the same way. And if you try to kind of like make a health intervention, something that's going to be universal, I don't know that that's going to be as helpful as really trying to target these different populations. And I think that's, uh, you know, while it is a challenge that America faces, it's not really a challenge that's being addressed appropriately, in my opinion. Yeah, common thinking patterns amongst citizens within the same country, common ideals, beliefs, values. It's, it seems like this country is just so divided. And all this just, all this right. relates... All this relates also to other issues as well that we face as a nation. Like health is related to systemic racism and environmental racism and housing and crime. All of this is all related to health. So all the other problems that this nation is facing politically um, at this at, at, at every level, federal, state, city, it's just like there's so much that's been going on in this country. So many, so many fighting, so much fighting and riots and, right. and issues. All of that's going to affect our health. So I think that's an interesting point that in other countries, it's more uniform thinking and people have more of an understanding of like taking matters into their own hands, like what it actually means to be healthy, to sit down and have a meal, um, you know, portion size and to walk after meals and to exercise. You know, I think I think we need to educate people more in this country. Everything starts with education. Everything starts with medical literacy. And I think until we do that, we're going to have these huge problems. But going back to um, going back to neighborhoods and how that affects our health. Honestly, I, I don't I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who say, oh, it's because the area I live in. Like, yeah, you have a higher chance of being obese, being sick, being on medications and dying if you live in lower income areas more crime less access to healthy foods all those things we mentioned um but then again like so for the listener out there like us three valentina joe and i and i we all grew up in the same zip code we all grew up in the same zip code and within a quarter mile there's a mcdonald's a wendy's (laughs) A Burger King, a Popeyes, a Pizza Hut, a Chinese food buffet, um, a Dunkin' Donuts, a Seven Eleven—you name it. There's a Subway too. There's a, a, oh, a Subway. Healthy. It's a healthy out. option. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, okay. that quote-unquote healthy option. Yeah, processed meats and and, and contaminated <laughs> salad. E. coli. So within within. <clears throat> Uh, less than a quarter mile you have all these fast food change in a in a zip code that us three grew up in are we sick unhealthy obese do we have diabetes like no the answer is no so what actually what's the difference between us three and our neighbors who may have medical issues and my answer to that question is education we all have college degrees we understand what being healthy is we understand about preventative medicine we are curious about our own health we are we are curious about what our doctors are telling us. You know, we we take matters into our own hands. And I'm gonna argue and say that also willpower is a huge, huge factor in, in having optimal health. 
because I understand that if I let myself go, I can just make that excuse and say, hey, you know what? Look at everybody else around me. They're all eating junk food. They're all eating fast food. I'm more likely to to be unhealthy because of that. So I'm just going to do that. I'm going to see what my friends are eating and I'm just going to eat that. So I would argue that, no, just because you're in a, in a certain zip code doesn't mean that you're going to have those medical conditions. It'll make you more at risk. But what's actually making you more at risk? Is it a lack of willpower and curiosity? Is it more of a mental thing? Is it more of a, a, a laziness thing? Is it more of just following the crowd, more of a psychological thing? Or is it something else? That's that's my question. I mean, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, for sure, like on an individual level, it's important that we take, like we become our own advocates for our health. Um, I know that, you know, kind of like in my case, like when I would go to the doctor and being someone who did, you know, have the opportunity to go to college and, you know, learn even just outside of college too, like just um, someone, people like us who did take the time to learn about health and, you know, continue to try to be curious about our own health. Um, While that is super important and obviously like, you know, there is that element as well. um, It's kind of hard to kind of place that as, you know, a solution because at the end of the day, that's not really solving the underlying issue of the risk factor. And the risk factor is exactly what it is. It's a risk factor. It's going to make people more prone to having these types of health issues when they do live in food swamps or food deserts. Um, You know, and of course it's not going to be every single person in the population, like for example, us three, but you know, it would have been much easier had we had those options growing up, had we had, better access to, you know, not as much junk food. Like, you know, I probably could have benefited from not having a McDonald's within walking distance, you know, but I mean, and that's just, it's not even an issue just here. Like that's just everywhere in America too. Like, um, yeah. but I think it's important to remain cognizant of the fact that, you know, in general, that shouldn't take away from the fact that we should try to, I mean, there should be policy changes towards, um, you know, making sure that there is better access to supermarkets and healthier, you know, alternatives to eating rather than relying on like the corner store, right? There are areas in like South Bronx and, you know, Brownsville, Brooklyn, things like that, um, where there isn't even a supermarket to go to, right? We at least have a little key food, (laughs) you know what I mean? But, you know, some places they don't even have that like they don't have cars they just have to walk to the corner store and you know hey like if all you can afford is you know whatever you can get with your fixed income and and it makes things much harder um but uh, of course like it's definitely not a reason for people to not care about their own health and that's why i think if you're if you are someone who comes from a more um, underserved community you should really try to take the advocacy over your health and if your options are between getting a salad at a fast food restaurant without all the dressing and getting a burger, get the salad, you know, things like that. Make the changes where you can, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not saying like, okay, well, you know, you live here. Well, you should just like, you know, be better, just eat healthier. It's more just like about, okay, well within your constraints, what better choices can you make? And that's where it goes to kind of like educating the population a little bit more, which is a hard thing to do. Yeah. And we go back again to education, Uh, like we were mentioning in the beginning, 
education is a, a primary social determinant of health. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Why is it that us three are, why don't we have any of these diseases? Why are we in the positions that we're in? It's because we're curious people to begin with. We have willpower, but willpower comes from curiosity. Like, like what, it, what separates one person from somebody else from doing something, right? It's, it's a lot of things. But then I also wanted to mention something. I don't know if you guys read the book Atomic Habits by James Clear, but he mentioned something very important in the book, and that's that our habits, they actually come from environmental cues. So, you know, if these fast food corporations, if, they, if they're strategically placing fast food joints in, in places where people are living, they, they, they're, they're gaming the system. They know how this stuff works. They know how human psychology works. And, you know, we do, like how much control do people really have is what I'm trying to get out. Like how much freedom and willpower do we actually have? Is it more that we're, we're doing this subconsciously or is this consciously? I, I think it's both. Like I, I think that, you know, if you, if you have five McDonald's right there, chances are that you're probably going to go to it. Right, it just increased risk. It doesn't mean you're going to do it, but you are you are at increased risk because you have literally five McDonald's at your doorstep, right? Um, versus if you had a Whole Foods where you can get like a healthy meal, I don't know, grass fed meat, uh, wild cuts, Alaskan salmon, or something like that. So we have to keep that in mind that a lot of this is strategic. Like these fast food restaurants, they place these places literally in front of houses, also commercials. Right, Super Bowls. They're putting commercials of KFC and Popeyes and Wendy's. Like, yeah, they know all that should be illegal. That should all be illegal. <laughs> it should public be health, public health. This is insane. It's just it's in it's this country. It's so specific to this country. I'm sure there are others, but yeah. are they? Do they really have our best interest? Because they're shoving down. They're shoving these commercials in our face. These pharmaceuticals in our face. Like, who is in control of this? It just sounds so corrupt. Yeah, there's not yeah. even just big farmer. There's big salt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big, yes, yeah. there it is, and also big sugar is, is yeah. another big one. Big sugar, but just to put a, a bow around, uh, uh, tie a bow around what we were talking about earlier, like why why is it that Europeans, you know, have better health outcome than we have? And I think Valentina, you mentioned something really important: is that they all we we think differently in the U.S. Like the U.S. is such a big country. Like, I don't know if you've traveled across the country, but I've, I've been to California, Texas, Florida. Like, it's it's as if you're in a different country. Like, the way people think, right? Their access to things, their perceptions. And and I'm going to I'm gonna mention something. Like, a lot, of, a lot of it comes down to freedom in this country, right? Freedom. Like, I want freedom. So, what does that mean? Well, um, I want freedom to buy soda as big as I want. And I want the freedom to eat McDonald's every single day. And that's my right. So I think in this country, um, that unfortunately seeps into healthcare. It's this whole freedom situation. Yeah, right. It's the same thing. It's a, it's, it's just, we come from things from, from, from the perspective of always freedom above everything else. Right. But uh, that's not how Europeans think. Like they're, they're, they actually sacrifice a little bit of the freedom for the common good. Which is why Europeans they spend more, they pay more in taxes than we do. But everyone has health insurance, right? Anybody across the street can go to the to the, to the doctor. Doesn't matter what zip code you live in, right? They invest in all these programs, and it comes from everybody. So everybody contributes. In the U.S., we don't have a universal healthcare system, and 
where we have our insurance companies that are based on your employer. So if you don't if you don't work, then you can't see the doctor, which to me is ridiculous. How we're 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 pairing something so important that is your healthcare to your employer. Like if you lost your job, you can't see a physician. Like that's yeah. just crazy to me. And suppose right? that in order to get a job, you need to go to the physical therapist, right? To help yeah. with some type mm. of like physical ailment that's preventing you from working in the first place. And just going back to like the different thinking in the country, like looking at inoculation rates, for example, the vaccine was so heavily politicized. And because of that, that affected vaccination rates. And that, I would say, had a lot to do with the rise in death rates during the COVID pandemic. And not even just the pandemic, but in general, um, people not wanting to vaccinate their kids. And, you know, I understand religious reasons and all this stuff, but, you know, I think the politis, the just like politics and, you know, obviously public health is inherently political, right? You can't remove one from the other, unfortunately, but at mm -hmm. the same time, um, things like the COVID vaccine were so heavily politicized and weaponized in that presidential campaign a couple years ago that like it, I, I would argue that it furthered the distance between, it furthered the distrust between the population and medicine. Yeah, for sure. It, it, I mean, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, when you think about the CDC, the NIH, these are all governmental agencies. So right. yeah, I mean, political powers, whether Republican, de Democratic, Fauci, this other guy. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate how we're also tying politics into this. Yeah. So, we, and, yeah. And we shouldn't be, I mean, why should, why are politicians in charge of, of healthcare decisions? Right. It shouldn't doesn't make be. any sense to me. Like leave that to the healthcare professionals. Why, when I'm doing a note as a physical therapist, why are insurance companies telling me that a patient should be cut off from, from, from seeing them because it's not medical it's not medically necessary. Right. An insurance company is telling a physical therapist who trained seven years and 7.3 years in total that that patient is not required to get treated anymore. Why, why I'm, yeah. I'm the medical professional. I get to determine whether a patient continues skilled treatment, not an insurance company. Right. And that's the problem we're having in this country. Yeah. And the same thing in, in medicine, uh, the, what happened in starting in the nineties is that you had these huge healthcare corporations. They started buying out medical practices and they started, you know, employing like administrators with MBAs and none of them are physicians. Like none of them have a healthcare background mm -hmm. and they're basically, uh, they use these electronic medical records as, as, as cash registers is basically what they are. Yeah. Um, right. Coding, building all this, it's just to make money. That's how it is. And it's unfortunate. But you um, don't have a certain yeah. modifier on the code, then can't get paid. Mm -hmm. And if it does have the modifier, you have to have the documentation to back it up. But mm -hmm. only if we decide Terrible. that it's bad. Terrible. Yeah, KX I know. Modifier, GR modifier, this and that, all this stuff that just takes away from patient care. I spend so much time doing notes and, and justifying why I should continue to treat a patient. Then sometimes even treating the patient, it's crazy. The amount of medical documentation that these insurance companies are requiring. Yes, yeah, so I think I don't think we should be pairing politics and healthcare together because I think we really should just leave it to the medical professionals to dictate, you know, medical necessity to dictate, um, you know, vaccines and all these other things. I think we should leave it to the experts. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think we can separate that or it's they're 
you have to keep them together. I mean, I don't think you could ever fully separate something like that because um, unfortunately, politics dictates everything, right? We need politicians. You know, they're the ones that create the laws and, and, and you know, unfortunately, healthcare, a lot of it is legislature. But yeah, I, I do agree with you. I think, I think that we should have more physicians and people with medical backgrounds in general in a position of power, making, making laws and rules. I think, I think, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. I, and, you know, kind of like what I said before about how public health is inherently political because it touches on things that politics also is going to touch on, right? So when you're thinking about policy change, which is a whole sector of public health, like that inherently is going to go to politicians and, you know, kind of like what Joe said, like if we do have people who are of a medical background, who actually have the knowledge and the interest even in health and the healthcare populations, it would be way better than it being some random dude with like, you know, an MBA or whatever it is. Like, what is, what is that person going to know about women's health or about, you know? Yeah anything to do with nutrition or whatever it may be. Yeah, exactly. It's a, there's a disconnect between elected officials and, and healthcare. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. But, uh, I think this is a good segue to, to, to start talking about nutrition. Hold on, Joe. One more. I mean, actually, yeah, it is related to nutrition, but it's related back to your point earlier about Europe versus America. So this is, I found this really interesting. Why, why, your question was, how come they're more healthy in, in Europe than here? And let me put it to you this way. Do you guys know the company Heinz that makes ketchup? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you compare the ingredients of tomato ketchup, the same company Heinz, if you compare the American version to the, the UK version, let me read you guys the ingredients of the American version. Tomato concentrate, distilled vinegar, High fructose corn syrup, oh, corn God. syrup, salt, spice, onion powder, and natural flavoring. Now, let me read you guys the ingredients of the UK version. Tomatoes, spirit vinegar, sugar, salt, spice, and herb extracts. So the same company, same product, completely different ingredients. What mm -hmm. The American version has corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup, which has been linked to inflammation, obesity, diabetes, all these things. And the other version, the UK version does not have that. So what's going on here? Are we being set it's up a, for success in this country? It's is the it, same thing, know? Sam. It's what we were just talking about. It's big, it's big corporations, right? The vegetable seed or corporation. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't attack them yet, but I think it's their turn. So vegetable seed oils, right? In this country, like when you, when you think about uh, canola oil, uh, palm seed oil, soybean, right? All those are vegetable seed oils and that's all in the food. So anytime you guys buy anything that's in a package or a, a jar, it's mostly processed seed oils, all right? And that's been linked to diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, um, other chronic inflammatory disorders like autoimmune disease. So this just, go, just goes back to what we were just saying is, is that Europe, they have... The government regulates the stuff. It doesn't. They don't allow these corporations to, to kind of determine and, and create these these products. They just don't. The same reason why they don't let them do pharmaceutical drug ads. The same reason why, if you if you guys you guys should check out this this um, 
this PBS show that I that I watched. It's about what children eat in Europe compared to the U.S. You should see what the kids are eating in France. Like they're eating like gourmet style food, like salmon, grilled salmon, asparagus, mashed potatoes, and like all this French food. And then you look at what we're eating, what we feed our children here. I mean, I don't know how yeah. there's not more. <laughs> yeah, chicken nuggets and like uh, pizza, pizza and chocolate fries. milk. I mean, yeah. I don't know how there's not more disease in this country. By right? the way, what's up with that combination of chocolate milk and frozen pizza? Does anybody actually like that, or are we just like used to that? <laughs> I, I guess that's the way. That's the way it is. Who it's created the pinnacle that? of health in New York City public schools? Yeah, just chocolate milk and the oval pizza. Yep. <laughs> and if you're feeling fancy, if you want to be healthy, here's a peach cup with like a yeah. bunch of sugar yeah. and like syrup in it. And don't forget the hash browns. No oh, yeah. wonder. <laughs> no wonder people don't trust doctors. They don't they don't trust healthcare officials in this country. No wonder. Yeah. Why should we? I don't trust them. I don't either. That's why I take help into my own hand. Like we're this is not good. This is not I good. Don't yeah, guys. I don't remember eating a fruit in school. Maybe they had apples or something. Like in yeah. bags. The, the oh, apples, bags. yeah. Processed, yeah. processed apples. But it was like it wasn't <laughs> even ripe. It was like green. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I want to talk about nutrition and culture, guys, and also about a little bit about the Hispanic community. So, you know, I don't know what your experience has been, but I feel like this is just my experience as a provider. Um, when I get like, you know, Hispanic patients and not not so much the ones who were born here. But the ones who, who come from other countries like Latin America, you know, Caribbean, like the way they the way they view health is is just completely different from the way I guess we view health or like Americans or you know whatever. Uh, so my question to you guys is what what do you guys think about that? What have you guys seen um, regarding that? So I think that you know obviously as someone coming from a Hispanic background myself. Rice is a staple, right? And, you know, heavily seasoned things are a staple. And I guess before I even go into why that may be problematic, I do want to point out that if we are going to try to target these issues, no one's going to listen if you if you tell them, well, just don't eat rice. That's not going to work, you know? So I think the question should lead to what can nutritionists and other you know, clinicians and doctors and practitioners, what can they do? What can they suggest to these people who, you know, we don't want to give up our cultural foods, right? We don't want to eat like salad and like, you know, just like, we don't want to eat bland food either, right? What can be suggested to these communities instead of just being like, don't eat rice. And I think an alternative could be like, okay, well, how about less rice? How about try an alternative rice or something like that you know these little changes might be a little bit better perceived because if you tell a 55 year old hispanic man to not eat rice i'm sorry he's not gonna listen he wants his rice and potatoes yeah yeah exactly and i just want to make something clear guys you should only be eating rice and beans if you're broke and in debt all right like like late like dave ramsey says i want you on the rice and beans beans and rice diet if you're in debt but anyway yeah, I mean, this just goes back to, again, education. Uh, uh, you know, I have a lot of patients who are Hispanic who they don't, they don't associate rice with, with unhealthy, right? Because they, 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 it's like safe for them. It's comfortable. It's culture, right? 
rice and beans and like, I don't know, an egg or something, right? Eggs are good, by the way. But um, rice and beans, like it's just you're eating all these carbohydrates and like they don't associate it. Like they just don't, they don't there's no link between the two. So I think it, it comes down to education again, like having the awareness that like, like rice and beans are like going to spike your insulin and that's what's going to cause you to be diabetic and gain weight and raise your blood pressure. Like there's no association between them. Um, also from what I've seen is there's kind of like a, like almost like a lackadaisical or a disregard of health among Hispanic people. I don't know what your, what your experience has been or what you guys think about that. Of course, not everybody, but in general, I feel like, it's 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 not something that they take seriously. It's something that like it's maybe three, four, five on their list. It's not something they're actively working to do. Um, and you know, unfortunately, it's a lot of a lot of drinking. Not everybody, but like you know, tend to drink a little bit more. A lot a lot of higher rates of tobacco. I mean, this is well established. Um, and I I don't know how much of that is culture versus socioeconomics. You know, because, you know, this ties back to the same thing. Um, rice and beans are cheap. That's right. It's the cheapest thing you can buy in the supermarket. So if, if you don't have money, you know, that's if where you're going to eat. If you're trying to feed a family of like, you know, if you have a big family of like five, six, and, you know, you're coming from a low income household, then, you know, what's going to be the most, the easiest thing to do to fill the kids up? You know, rice and beans, potatoes, you know what I mean? And so... It's, it's tricky because you don't want to like be blind to that, but at the same time, there has to be some changes made, but I think that the most beneficial, or I guess the most impactful change, the more impactful change would just be to suggest, um, alternatives that fit into the culture rather than like, you know, like alternatives that just, you know, they're not going to like, you know what I'm saying? Cause that's not going to work either, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So that's the tricky part is like, what can, what are some culturally sensitive or, um, I guess, relevant foods that people in these communities can eat? And, you know, the Caribbean communities as a whole, what can they eat that, that would, I guess, be the healthier alternative, but that they're still going to want to eat, you know what I mean? Yeah. Great point. Great point. I'm going to address those two points, Valentina. The first thing you mentioned was... Yeah, if you tell somebody not to do something, they're more likely to do it. People get defensive psychologically. Like nobody, if you tell someone, don't do that. Like if you're, if you're um, trying to discipline your kid and you say, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. How are they going to react? They're going to react out of fear. They're going to they're gonna get defensive. So if you tell, if you explain to somebody why it's helpful to decrease rice intake, how it can help their health. But the main thing is motivational interviewing. So now we're diving into the world of how to elicit change within our clients. And the best way to elicit somebody to to change is to get them to realize that they have to change. It's not to tell them to change. It, It all goes back to motivational interviewing. So motivational interviewing or MI is a collaborative goal oriented style of communication. And it pays particular attention to language uh language of change and how we use our words so there's there's a few things we can do and one of the main things is just showing empathy showing an understanding of listen i understand this food is cultural trust me i have it too i eat it it tastes amazing you know i'll have it for holidays 
I get where you're, I understand where you're coming from. Just saying that will make them realize this person is someone I can trust. They're not out to get me. You know, one thing in the- Yeah, but Sam, I have to stop you there. How many, how many physicians in this country are Hispanic and black? Not as many as, as Caucasian. There, there we go. Right. So, so I, I, I agree with you. Right. But how, like, like how many PTs are Hispanic? Right. How many physicians are Hispanic and black? There's not many of them. There's not many of us. That's the problem. Like we have that cultural competency. Right. Like when I, when I tell a patient that I'm, I'm, I speak Spanish and we talk about like, uh, Hispanic culture, like that patient is immediately like, I can basically get them to do anything. But mm-hmm. what if I was, uh, a Caucasian male, right. Who is come coming from generational wealth, right? Like what, what how am I going to relate to that patient who, who eats r- rice and beans and like, is an immigrant who doesn't like, they, they, they can't, like, they're just going to be like, I can't relate you. This is the pill. Yeah, you Goodbye. can, yeah, you can, you have to find and- a way. It's their responsibility. Well, there's, but there's I know. also a language barrier, though. Right? Yeah, that's another so one. So if you have a patient who's going to come in who, you know, doesn't speak English that well, or maybe even speaks English just fine, but then you have a practitioner who has absolutely no, uh, I guess, like, can, you, you can't identify, the like, the, the, the patient can't identify with the practitioner at all, then how are they going to be, how are they going to feel like they can trust what the person is saying if they can't even like the message does, is not going to get across, right? Different languages have different ways of saying things. Yeah, right. And so it's definitely more powerful and more beneficial for there to be more cultural competence, cultural competency there, right? So if you have a physician who's going to be Hispanic speaking to Hispanic patients, then of course they're going to be able to relate more on a on a more trustworthy level. And not only is that going to make the patient feel more comfortable listening to the physician, but it's also going to make the patient more comfortable expressing their concerns and what other health problems they may be having, right? A lot of Hispanics, um, and, you know, obviously there's Mm -hmm. going to be the relationship of um, Hispanics in America and uh, being undocumented, right? If you're an undocumented Hispanic person seeking medical care, then you're you're probably going to, first of all, not even going to want to go to the doctor because you're undocumented. So there's that fear of like, oh, you know, I don't want to like, put mm-hmm. myself into the system too much yeah so that's already a whole issue now you have a whole group of people who are undocumented who aren't getting any health care at all right so now add the added layer of like okay suppose for some reason they are able to get to the doctor and speak to the doctor right they don't know the language how are they going to understand what the caucasian or you know just non-spanish speaking doctor is even trying to say a translator who's usually going to be like a 19 year old girl who's like doing her best yep to translate what the doctor's trying to say, like, it's just not going to work. And the focus just goes back to the, like, major shift that I think that if we could just focus more on cultural competency across the board, that would be super beneficial. And not even just Hispanic populations, but, you know, for example, in the Jewish population as well, I worked for um, a doctor who served primarily, uh, Kew Gardens Hills, basically, which is a predominantly Jewish community in Flushing. And, you know, all of the doctors, um, not all, all of the patients would want to go to him just because they could relate to him. They were of the same religion. They would be able to, you know, just relate on a deeper level and work around like their own cultural practices that they've grown up with to say, hey, you know, these are the changes that you have to make 
eat this cultural food instead of that cultural food, you know, things like that. Cause they're all, there are healthy options, right. In every culture. It's just a matter of trying to get that point across in a way that's trustworthy and in a, in a way that's actually going to translate. Yeah, I, I think we keep we keep going back to the same themes here, and th- that is cultural competency and education, right? That that's the recurring theme here, and yeah, I mean that's going to be this is a completely separate topic that I'm sure we'll do a talk on, but it's um, how do we increase diversity in healthcare, right? Yeah. right? That's a huge problem in this country that we don't talk about enough. There's not enough, and not just like like the color, the color of your skin, but also like, do you have job experience? Do you have life right. experience? A lot of these, a lot of physicians, and I can, I can say this because I'm a physician. Uh, a lot of my colleagues, they don't really have experience with life. And they just go from college to medical school to residency. And a lot of them, they take their first job as an attending and they've never worked before. That's literally their first job. Right. I mean, I can say I've worked several jobs in college. I worked between summers. So I had you worked a little at bit of food. life experience. I worked at Kifu. Shout out, shout out to Kifu. You worked at Kifu. So, I, I have Stuck that life experience. <laughs> and I know I know what it's like to come from nothing, right? Absolute nothing to, to rise to the top. So I, I know what that is. And a lot of physicians, they don't, they've never had that issue because they come from generations of, of physicians, of always being well off, third, fourth, fifth generation Right. So, but anyway, um, well, so what can you, what can be done about this guys? Like what, what is the solution to all of this? I have a few ideas. Um, but first of all, what's the most, what's the most diverse country in the world? Is it America? It's a, a good question. I don't know. Is it America? I, I mean, I, I, it's up there, right? We have a lot of different cultures. I mean, especially let's just say for example, New York, right? It's like a, uh, most diverse city. Most diverse city, That's right? Well, oh, Queens. So, yeah, right? Queens. So other countries aren't as diverse, right? America, a lot of people come to America, right? A lot of people come to America. So that creates this issue of um, cultural competency, right? How competent are our providers? Can they handle the amount of different cultures? So is that actually... How do we actually change that? Do we do we educate yeah. at a younger age in schools? Do we do we do we teach more languages when kids are growing up? Because every time I go to Europe, everybody speaks two or three languages. Yeah. Here it seems like everyone just knows one language. So yep, do we barely. Teach, do we teach more <laughs> Spanish? Do we teach more Mandarin? Or do like what? How do we solve that problem? Uh, I think that's an excellent point, Sam. Yeah. I, I think I think that. That that starts at the admissions committee level, right? Like they, we need we need to first of all we need to admit more underrepresented minorities, right? That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've done a good job at admitting more more women because now we're fifty fifty across all the healthcare fields, pretty much in terms of male and female. Uh, but we we're not we're not nowhere near being equal in terms of race, religion, background. Um, you know, like, you know, maybe like even people who switch careers, non-traditional applicants, because that brings diversity to the field. It's not it's not just like black and white. It's it's like, you know, other things like how, how did you work before? Do you have experience in the military? Do you have experience? Right. There's so many like business. You own the business and now you want to become a who knows, like a, a, a PT or whatever. Like there's so many things that go into it. But I think that's an excellent suggestion. Um, I would say we have to implement things at a systemic level. We have to limit fast food chains, right? That, I mean, that has to be done immediately. 
Uh, I mean, if I were president, I would sign an executive order right now and I would ban fast food chains and, and put some sort of limit onto the number of fast food restaurants. And what, what, would, be, what would you supplement that with? Because a lot of communities literally survive off that. Well, I would supplement them with farmers markets. Um, you could, you could, you know, put more Whole Foods supermarkets, expand, you know, places like Trader Joe's. Yeah, uh, I would. Yeah, yeah, but like as Valentina was saying earlier, um, and you can expand on this, Valentina, like Costco and a lot of these uh, bigger, more healthy supermarket options don't really go to these areas and neighborhoods where the incomes are lower because they know that people cannot afford a sixty dollars annual membership fee for Costco. Right. And that's also where even more systemic change has to come from. Right. So it this is like, again, like these are just such major, deeply embedded issues in this country that it's, you know, we could sit here for hours trying to pick apart like what can be done. But at the end of the day, like it's going to take a lot of like, you know, policy change, a lot of uh, lobbying, yeah, <laughs> a lot yeah. of just like in general, just infrastructural change that is not going to happen in even I, I would argue even decades but i mean maybe that's being pessimistic but you know i i just think that in order for that level of change to happen then there definitely has to be a greater awareness of these issues in the first place yeah i i think we have to take the same approach that we took towards tobacco um like we we have to ba basically just ban it uh, banned commercials. We can't smoke on airplanes. We can't smoke in restaurants. We can't smoke within 50 feet of buildings. We're going to have to do the same thing in this country when it comes to sugar, when it comes to fast food, and when it comes to these commercials. Like There has to be a ban on this stuff because there's no other way. Um, if, we, if we did it with tobacco, why can't we do it with, with, uh, with this? There's well, we no reason why. We need to explain and educate people to start seeing fast food as poison as a drug because it is a drug and like you said joe these companies in the labs there's actually there's scientists that research addiction and they put certain chemicals and foods and products in our fast foods like i just said with the with the heinz tomato ketchup mm -hmm. so they do it on purpose because they know how to manipulate your brain once they manipulate your brain to these neurotransmitters and, and dopamine addiction centers of your brain you're going to keep eating fast food and you're going to eat it for life until you make a, uh, a conscious decision and have that willpower to stop. So I think uh, I think that's where it needs to start. I think the first ban, if I was president, the first thing I would do is ban fast food restaurants within five miles of any public school or private school. Because kids after school, where they're going to go with a couple dollars, they're going to go to fast food. And we don't want our kids to be growing up eating that stuff because it builds bad, bad habits and it's causing a huge childhood obesity problem. So that'd be my first policy. Yeah. I mean, we're basically swimming against the current in this country. I mean, when you, at every corner that we turn, there's, there's an obstacle. And I mean, there's, there's no, there's no, uh, it's not surprising that we had the worst health outcomes during COVID. I mean, this is, it's just a manifestation of everything. You know, um, you know, the life expectancy went down because of COVID, but also because we're so over, overweight, obese, diabetic, heart disease, mental health, uh, poor job security. There's no, this housing is out of, like, look at the rents right now in New York. Look at the house prices. Like, how are people doing this? Yeah. Right? This is crazy. The stock market is going down. I mean, this is a mess, guys. Like, I, I don't know what the solution is. 
I, I, I pray for the next president because this is we're in such a uh, we're in such a deep mess right now. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what do you? Uh, is there anything else you guys wanted to talk about today? I think we covered a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just it all just comes down to the importance of you know public health as a whole. It's such a broad, broad field, but it's broad for a reason, right? Like it encompasses everything going from policy change to nutrition to epidemiology to, you know, even healthcare administration, all of that just ties in and it's all background work. Um, But, you know, hopefully, especially after the pandemic with more awareness about what public health even is, you know, it's not just a buzzword, it's an actual thing, it's an actual field, Um, you know, hopefully that there can be more awareness and more funding towards it. Yeah, Great. definitely. I love uh, I love this topic on public health. I didn't know too much about it. Well, actually, Joe pointed out that he was like, you know more than you think you know about it. Because, but the word itself, public health, I was like, what what actually is that? But now that we're talking about it, like there's and the social determinants, I'm like, oh, I do know some stuff about it. But I mean, I do want to talk a little bit about um, a little more about medical literacy. Um, so in 1993 and 2003. There was a national adult literacy survey that was done. And these are some interesting stats here. So about 2% or 4 million adults have language barriers. And these stats are a little bit outdated. So it's probably even worse now. Um, 14% or 37 million adults in this country are functionally illiterate. 29% or 75 million adults have less than an eighth grade level literacy level. And 53% or 114 million adults are at a, are between a 10 and 12th grade level. So only 12% are proficient because of a college level understanding. So this just goes back to, you know, when we explain stuff to, to patients with all this medical jargon, like, like you said, Valentina, when, when your doctor was explaining PCOS and, you know, you have a college degree, you know, so can you imagine somebody without any education listening to those words like how that just that's just terrible it just sets them up for failure like i think i think based on these stats and and the amount of medical illiteracy that we have as providers we need to be very very clear on the issue and we need to explain things in layman's terms because there's so much misinformation out there so we need to do a better job explaining to our patients what's going on in simple terms yeah, medical yeah. jargon, for sure. Um, I try my Too best much. when I speak to patients. You really have to dumb it down for them. Like, it has to be at an eighth grade level, to be honest. Like, even words like hypertension, what does that mean? High blood pressure, like your blood pressure is high. Like, what does that mean? Uh, you're diabetic. Like, people don't know these these things. Like, we know them because we're educated, but we really have to, like, make sure that we're, um, that we're like, you know, speaking to everybody at a, at a level that they understand. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's very important. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and going back to food costs, uh, I, I have to disagree, uh, with, with that because it's a common argument that people say, you know, I eat fast food because it's cheap and eating healthy and eating organic and whatnot is, is too expensive, but that's, that's just not true because I went to stop and shop the other day. And I bought, 
I bought like six four ounces of grass-fed ground beef for five dollars each, and with one four ounce grass-fed grass-finished beef that cost five dollars, I ate lunch for two days. So that's those are that's two meals for five dollars. Last time I went to a fast food chain, which was a long time ago, you can't even get anything for that price anymore. You get a burger and a fry or whatever whatever people eat at a fast food chain, and you're looking at like ten, twelve, thirteen dollars with with tax. So I think if you go to a store and you buy, you know, some 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 grass fed meat for five bucks, ground beef, you buy some raw honey. You eat a couple of tablespoons a day. How much is that? Not a lot. You eat some fresh fruit, like a mango, avocados. Um, you know, you can make a salad. This is—it's not as expensive as people think. It really isn't. So I think I don't think that's a good excuse anymore. That fast food is—you know—I eat fast food because it's cheap and I don't have money and I'm low income and this and that. I think there are ways to purchase healthy foods without breaking the bank. Yeah, I think the argument is also just more like, you know, it's good that you are able to go to stop and shop. And it's good that, you know, you know, some people don't really have the ability to go to a stop and shop. All they have is the, the bodega and mm-hmm. Burger King. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, it yeah. just it, there really should be more supermarkets yeah. um, in these food swamp areas, because I think that would help alleviate a big amount of. Uh, population who are just relying on the crap that is McDonald's and Wendy's and Taco Bell. I mean, I like Taco Bell sometimes. I'm not gonna lie, but <laughs> but you yeah. know what I mean. Like, it's just it. There, there has to be more of these supermarkets because clearly it's not expensive to eat healthy. It's not. So, you know, what can motivate these corporations to put more of these stores into these food swamp areas, right? So mm-hmm. that that's also like a, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm looking at it from like a public health point of view, obviously on the individual level, like you got to do what you got to do. You know what I mean? The internet now serves as a great resource to educate yourself on health. And that's another thing that hopefully can help more down the line, but you know. Yeah. It all comes down to education and having awareness and thinking for yourself because we live in a world where everything's available at our fingertips. We have cell phones, we have internet, we have YouTube, podcasts, like there's everything is out there. All you need is a curiosity and a will to want to learn. That's all you need, right? It's it's really that simple. Um yeah. but yeah, this 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 was this was great, guys. I, I think we should definitely do a part two because oh I, I think we just yeah, scratched I really the surface. Want to do this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this was this was amazing. I think we just scratched the surface. Um, I mean, I have so many ideas for other podcasts. Of I, I, I mean, this could literally be part two, three, four of public health. There's just so much yeah. to talk about. And before but, we um, go, guys, before mm-hmm. we go, I want to mention one thing. I'm gonna link this link in the description of the video on the podcast. Um, so as we know, there are many vital signs: blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen etc there's a new vital sign that's actually that can actually assess your health literacy and you can find it on pfizer.com it's called a health literacy assessment tool for patient care and research so you can take this test both available in english and spanish it takes three minutes and you can get an assessment of how medically literate you are so i'll link that in the description awesome well this was amazing thank you so much valentina for taking the time to to you know teach us about public health 
um if people want to learn more about you where where can they check you out oh yeah um so i guess my instagram um instagram valentina gmzh i sing sometimes there i haven't in a long time but <laughs> okay sometimes i do and uh and yeah just my linkedin you know valentina gomez awesome awesome <laughs> nice. awesome yeah so this was this was a blast guy and we should definitely do this again so thank you all for listening yep thank you all for listening to the soto health and wellness podcast if you like our content please subscribe to our podcast on spotify google podcast amazon music and apple podcast feel free to email us with any comments questions or a topic you would like for us to discuss at the soto hwp at gmail.com in addition Please follow us on our YouTube channel, Soto Health and Wellness, and Instagram page at Soto Health and Wellness. Be well, everyone.